Welcome to the sermon podcast of Faith Covenant Church. Faith Covenant is a non-denominational Bible church based in Borger, Texas. We exist to take in all people, teach the truth, train followers, and transform lives. We hope that this sermon encourages you and brings you closer to our Savior, Jesus Christ. For more information about Faith Covenant Church, visit our website at www.faithborger.com. So I, I know y'all know this about me, but <clears throat> I'm, I'm just a football nut. And there's a CSPN show called 30 for 30. And uh, one of my favorite football teams of all time was the 1990 Colorado Buffaloes, uh, University of Colorado Buffaloes. They won the national championship, and they had a special about them on ESPN 30 for 30. And what was, a, this was such a great story because this team was, was built to win the national championship. They had an incredible quarterback. And right before the season started, they knew they had a chance to win the national championship. Right before their season started, their quarterback uh, found out he had cancer. He had leukemia. And it was a, a sad, sad story. And so everyone, if they're, you know, they're going to reach their goal of winning the national championship, everybody had to really up their game. They had to do more. They had to be more than it had ever been before. And so these grown men now, this was just a, few, a couple of years ago, they got all these men together, and they've all had NFL careers by now. A lot of them are in coaching. They had their coach, Bill McCartney, there, and they were sitting around his living room, and they were just talking about that season because they, they, they went into that season with a second-string quarterback but still trying to win the national championship. And their biggest rival, the Nebraska Cornhuskers. I don't know if you remember this, but man, what a rivalry it was. I mean, just, man, the hitting that would go on on that field. It was great. I loved it. It was great football. And so they're in this game against Nebraska. And the fourth quarter, the, the, uh, the game was tied. And the offense scored and got them the lead. And um, the, uh, it's just a battle royal because the Colorado Buffaloes are ranked number three in the nation, and the Nebraska Cornhusters are ranked number two in the nation. So this is for, this is for number one. I mean, the winner of this game is going to be number one in the AP poll the following week. So it's a battle royal. And uh, the defense has to go out there, and Nebraska had a great offense, you know? And they had to hold them in check. And there's this linebacker, his name is Alfred Williams. Now, he's a grown man, right? And he's sitting there talking to all his teammates. They're talking about this Nebraska game. You know, their, their season is hanging on, on, you know, by a thread here. And uh, Alfred Williams said he was trotting out into the field. And he's talking to this other guy who was the, uh, the running back, Eric Bienemy. And he looked at him. He said, man, I was, I was going out on the field. And he said, man, I don't know if you remember this. And I said, but you stopped me. And you grabbed my shoulder pads. You looked me in the eye. And he said, and this is Alfred Williams, a big man. He starts crying. He starts welling up with tears. And he says, man, and you encouraged me. You encouraged me. We went out there. And we stopped him, and we won that game. And while he was saying that, Coach McCartney just lit up. And, you know, Coach McCartney, this is the guy that started Promise Keepers, you know, just a really godly man. But he lit up when Alfred Williams said, you encouraged me. And, and Coach McCartney goes, that's right, that's right. And he said, encouragement is the most powerful form of motivation. And that really stuck with me. Encouragement is the most powerful form of motivation. Now, I don't know if you know this or not. We're going to talk about the power of encouragement today. And I don't know if you know this or not, but throughout our scriptures, all through the New Testament, we are commanded more than anything else to encourage one another. You see the word encourage over and over and over again in your New Testament. So here we are living in this world that we live in, 
And we have this mandate from God to find the reserves and the resources to encourage one another. And so I just want to tell you today, this is a topic very dear to my heart. This has the power to change marriages. This has the power to change families. This has the power to change classrooms. This has the power to change teams. This has the power to change any extracurricular group. Whatever might be going on, it's the power to change lives. Have you ever noticed that it's almost impossible to forget those moments in your life when you needed a word of encouragement, you were downtrodden, you were discouraged, and someone stopped you, grabbed you by the shoulder pad, so to speak, looked you in the eye, and encouraged you? It might have happened for you at work. It might have happened at school. But you know the kind of a word I'm talking about. It's a word that either strengthened your heart or it's a word that, that healed you in a place where you were wounded. And it's my strong conviction that there's so much more power in encouragement than we realize. You know, I was thinking about this as I was preparing, and I, and I realized, you know, there's two things I'm really devoted to in my life. Well, I should say three, my family, all right, but number one. But then number two and number three would be uh, the church and then school. You know, I, I taught school for a long time, and, um, you know, now I'm serving, uh, you know, school board and things like that. And I was like, why do I care about these two things so much, you know? And I realized that these were the two places in my life that I found the encouragement that I was so needing in my life as a young man. You know, when I, I'm 53 years old now. And when I think of na names of men in my church, names like Tommy and Al and Brad and Ed and Tony, guys who taught me Sunday school or was my youth pastor, uh, you know, there were deacons in my church and just, you know, some of my dad's friends that, you know, would come around, but they would encourage me. And I, and I still get an emotional response in my heart when I think about the way that those men encouraged me when I was 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. I mean, it's just, it was just life changing for me. And then I think about my school and I think about Mr. Bergman, my earth science teacher. You know, I have a geology degree because Mr. Bergman, my earth science teacher, he encouraged me so much. And there was Coach Tag and Coach Drawley, Coach Lochran, uh, Mr. Stam, my English teacher, who, 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 who told me, he said, Les, you know, you're, you're a gifted writer. You know, you really ought to, you know, you ought to devote yourself to this. Coach Mortensen, things like that. And I'm so grateful for some of the little things they said. And I doubt they have any idea how much it meant. And it wasn't just the things that they said, but it was also just the way they responded to me, the way they treated me with respect. And I could sense that they saw something in me. And I know now that it was the Lord doing that through them. It was the Lord encouraging me through them. And so 1 Samuel chapter 14. All right, we're going to meet a man named Jonathan today. Jonathan was the son of King Saul. And it's very likely that he was a teenager, and he's probably about the same age as David. We're going to be introduced to David in the next couple of weeks. But here's what's happened. Uh, a massive army has gathered, and they've intruded, and they've invaded Israel. And it's a threat to the nation's existence, all right? And they're invading Israel through a valley in a really mountainous area. Now, if you look at this picture you see up on the slides. You see that flat top, that mesa there? Just imagine the top of that mesa just covered with tens of thousands of troops, you know, tents and campfires everywhere. And, and the Bible says there were thousands of chariots, and they're only about seven miles 
from Jerusalem. And they're camping in this, this area around a village called Michmash. All right. Saul musters the army. He had several thousand soldiers. You might, if you were here last week, we talked about this. All right. And they're standing their ground and they're trying to stop them from coming down this valley, this big valley to invade their country. But then Saul's army sees the size of the Philistine army. They had 3,000 chariots, tens of thousands of soldiers. And so Saul's army begins to go AWOL. They just start leaving in the middle of the night. Every night, more and more soldiers are leaving. And the Israelite army gets down to 600 soldiers. It's like the Alamo, all right, except without the bravery. And the situation is just critical. And Jonathan, probably, there again, probably 16, 17, 18 years old, he thinks to himself, somebody has to make a move and do something. And there's only one way that we could ever hope to prevail in this situation, and that's if God does a miracle and gives us a victory. And so he sneaks away with his armor bearer. His armor bearer is probably also a teenager. And there's just the two of them. And he sneaks away in the dark, and he doesn't tell his father where he's going, just like teenagers have always done, all right? Sneaking away at night, not telling your dad where you're going, okay? And Jonathan decides he's going to flank the Philistines. He's going to attack them from the rear. But to do this, he's going to have to do some rock climbing. He's going to have to scale two large cliffs. And I think, yeah, they're up there on your screen. All right, and uh, one going down, one going up. All right, look at verse 4 in chapter 14. The cliffs were named Sinna, which means thorny, and Bozes, which means slippery. So this is not going to be a pleasant rock climbing trip, you know, in the middle of the night. But then one of the truly great statements anywhere in our Bible. Look at verse 6. Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, Come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised fellows. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. That is one of the great statements anywhere in the Scripture. See, Jonathan's faith is not in the numbers of soldiers or the strength of man like his father's faith is. Jonathan's faith is in God. And it is a tremendous faith. All right, let's read verses 8 through 14 now. All right, <clears throat> so the armor bearer said, let's do it. All right, let's go on this suicide mission. And Jonathan said, come then, we will cross over toward the men and let them see us. Look at that. And if they say to us, from up on, they're, up on, they're up on this, this mesa, and we're down at the bottom, down in this ravine. If they say to us, wait there until we come to you, we will stay where we are. We will stand our ground and not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, in other words, climb this cliff, we will climb up because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. So remember now, is at least 20, I'd say at least 30,000 people on top of this mesa, at the top of this cliff. You got two teenagers saying, we're going to attack them. <laughs> All right. And the signal is, if they say, come up here, you know, we've got the high ground, you know, it's like, come up here, we'll teach you a lesson. And if we, we're going to climb up there, that means God has, God has given them to our hands. All right. Now, uh, uh, got to go to verse 14. So, Jonathan climbed up, this is verse 13, using his hands and feet, all right, 
with his armor bearer right behind him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer followed and killed behind him. In that first attack, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in an area of about half an acre. All right, that would be about the size of a city lot. These two men, I mean, they're like wolverines with a rash. I mean, they're just going after these guys, man. They're just tearing them up, all right? They're doing great. And uh, I don't know if you see Jonathan's logic here. And the sun is probably just beginning to break, all right? But, you know, if they say, come up here, even though they've got the high ground, we're going after them. And it's a plan that's so bold. It's so confident. And it's so utterly foolish. In a way, it makes sense. <laughs> because when Jonathan and his armor bearer climb the cliff and attack, it's still dark. The rest of the army is going to hear the sound of swords in the dark. And they're going to think that they've been ambushed. And then they start swinging swords and they start killing each other. God always blesses faith. Always blesses faith with his power. Jesus said in Matthew 9, it shall be done to you according to your faith. Look at verse 15. This says that panic struck the whole army and those in the camp and the field and those in the outposts and the raiding parties and the ground shook. A minor earthquake came. It was a panic sent by God. Remember what Jonathan had said. Nothing can prevent the Lord from saving, whether it's by many or by few. And so God does a miracle. Panic ensues. These guys are swinging their swords in the middle of the night and there's total chaos and all order, all discipline breaks down. Look at verses 20 and through 23. Then Saul, this is the king, and all his men assembled and they went to battle because they saw what was happening. And they found the Philistines in total confusion, striking each other with their swords. And those Hebrews who had been traitors, they had previously been with the Philistines and had gone up with them to their camp, went over to the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. And when all the Israelites who had hidden in the hill country of Ephraim, the ones that had gone AWOL, they heard that the Philistines were on the run, they joined the battle. They came out of their holes and out of their caves in hot pursuit. And so the Lord rescued Israel that day and the battle moved on beyond beth Avon, about a distance of probably five to seven miles. All right, they're just, I mean, you just imagine you've got a sword in your hand. You're just chasing people down and hacking away. And this goes on all day long. And so they're on the run. They're running for several miles through this hill country. It's very rough terrain in this area where they are. And Saul says, I'm going to wipe out their army. This is going to give me regional dominance. And he wants his soldiers to pursue and pursue some more while the enemy is weak. And he gives a command that he thinks are going to, is going to keep his troops motivated. Look at verse 24. This is very important. Now the Israelites were in distress that day because Saul had bound the people under an oath saying, Cursed be anyone who eats food before evening comes before I've avenged myself on my enemies. And so none of the troops tasted food. In other words, you get no food until dark. I remember when I was little, my mom would say something like this. Get out of the house. I don't want to see you again until it's dark. <laughs> y'all remember that? Are y'all old enough to remember that? We don't do that to kids anymore, all right? But we used to do that back in the day. And uh, I remember when I was a little kid, go to the back door of the house, crack the door open, it's like, Mom, we've been outside a long time. 
Can we come in? Is it dark yet? No? There's your answer. <laughs> All right, that's how it was. And I'm throwing my mom under the bus here this morning. But we had to find ways to occupy ourselves for hours outside in the heat, all right? And there were no juice boxes in the refrigerator in the garage back in those days, all right? There were no juice pouches waiting for you somewhere, all right? No cold water bottles, okay, like you kids get today. You had to go get a drink out of a water hose. You remember that? And that water hose had been sitting out in the sun all day long, you remember, all right? And you'd go up there and (laughs) that water was scalding hot. It would, you know, give you a third degree burn if you got it on your flesh, you remember that? You turn on that water hose, and you go to get a drink out of that. And then you also get a mouthful of spider eggs. I don't know why spiders love water hoses. You know, you're getting this, this hot water. You know, it's, it's been you know, inundated with spider eggs. You drink it. And it, it's like a petrochemical cocktail, you know. It's, it's, it, it tastes like diluted kerosene, you know. And, and you're like, you know, oh, this water is awful. Is it, you think this is bad for us? Probably. <laughs> All right, but we're going to die of thirst if we don't drink it, you know. So you drink it. All right. <clears throat> and uh, there's nothing like <clears throat> scalding hot water laced with petrochemicals to quench a young man's thirst. Don't come home until dark. <clears throat> you know, sometimes kids didn't come home. I mean, really. And you never knew what happened to them. You know, you leave children outside that long, something's bound to happen. Malnutrition, dehydration, we don't know. <clears throat> that's why children, that's why families had such, so many children back in the old days. <laughs> you know? <laughs> You know, I was like, say, Mama, where's Joey? I don't know. He never came home today. <laughs> all right? They would just have another one. <laughs> all right? That's all they would do. <clears throat> so try to imagine being a soldier in Saul's army. You know, he's been fighting since daybreak. You've been on the run for 10 or 12 hours. No food. You'd be beyond exhausted. Look at verse 25. The enti- entire army entered the woods and there was honey on the ground. Probably some, you know, some uh, rotting logs and bees had made honeycombs in the logs. And when they went into the woods, they saw the honey oozing out. Can you imagine? You're starving and you walk into the woods <coughs> and there's honey everywhere. All right, it's like Winnie the Pooh's dream. All right. And yet no one put his hand to his mouth because they feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard that his father had bound the people with the oath. So he reached out the end of his staff that was in his hand. He dipped it into the honeycomb. And he raised his hand to his mouth and his eyes brightened. I want you to look at that (coughs) for a moment. (coughs) It says his eyes brightened. Literally, in the original language, it says the fire came back into his eyes. His eyes lit up. It's a metaphor <clears throat> saying that his strength was renewed. Corey, would you mind to get me a bottle of water? I'm sorry. Yeah, I drank that one already. Yeah. <clears throat> sorry, it's allergies right now. Plus, it's also California smoke. All right. You got that going on too. <clears throat> 1 Samuel 14, 27, the message says, Jonathan stuck his staff into the honey and he ate it and refreshed his eyes lit up with renewed vigor. Look again, look at verse 29. It says, Jonathan, what are you doing? What are you doing? And he says in verse 29, thanks so much, buddy. You're getting a raise. Good job. <laughs> he says, see how my eyes brightened when I tasted a little bit of this honey. Okay? Now you might be thinking, I thought this was a message about encouragement. 
you know, what does rock climbing and warfare and honey have to do with encouragement? Use your imagination for a moment. Try to imagine the visible effect that the honey had on Jonathan. There you are. Man, he is, he is lacking. He has no energy. Shoulders are drooped down. Eyes are, <clears throat> you know, kind of gray. He puts the honey in his mouth. He stands up straight, shoulders back, and he's got that fire back in his eyes. His eyes brightened. And look at this verse, Proverbs 16, 24. Gracious words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. By the way, to the bones doesn't necessarily mean it makes your bones healthy. It means it heals you down to the depths. It heals, pleasant words, grace-giving words heal you down to your bones. Look at that word gracious for a moment. The word there is words that are beautiful, words that are bright. Remember that what happened there? Jonathan's eyes brightened, all right? And it's a, it, it means words that give grace. I remember one of the first scriptures I ever committed to, to memory after I went into the ministry. I remember I, several times, I was a youth pastor, several times I was still treating kids the way that I spoke when I was in high school and college. I had a very cutting tongue. I was very sarcastic. I'd make a lot of jokes at other people's expense and things like that. And I saw myself a couple of times really wounding kids, just kind of playing around. And I still do it, by the way. I'm sorry. Sometimes I still do this. But I knew I needed some help in this area of my life. So I memorized Ephesians 4.29. Don't let any rotten, unhealthy words come from your mouth but only say what is helpful to make others stronger. Build others up and meet their needs. Then what you say will give grace to those who listen to you. In other words, it will heal them down to their bones. Encouragement in the biblical sense does not just mean flattery, having some nice things to say. That word encourage, when you see it, it appears over and over again in your New Testament in sorts of different forms. But it means to come alongside, alongside someone to inspire them, to hearten someone, to spur someone on. You move people on because you tell them that you give them the sense that you believe in them and you honor them and you respect them and you give them back their heart and you strengthen them. And just like Jonathan, that, that the effect of that honey on him, where it, 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 it caused him to stand up straight and the fire came back into his eyes. That's what encouragement does. The word that you see for encouragement in the New Testament is the word periclesis. And the word is used to describe it in the New Testament. And it was used to describe someone coming alongside another person. When you come alongside somebody who was a soldier and you would inspire them to fight, or it was a word that was used to describe the crowds of people who would come onto the pier when a, when a ship full of sailors was going to sail off to battle. And they would cheer them on. And they would, they would shout encouragement to them as they were going off to battle. And that's what that word meant. William Barclay, a great Bible scholar, uh, years and years ago, this word periclesis, an encourager, is a parakletos. And he said, therefore, a parakletos is an encourager, one who puts courage into the faint-hearted, one who nerves the feeble arm for the fight, 
and one who makes a very ordinary man cope gallantly with a perilous and dangerous situation. And it reminds me again of what Coach McCartney said, that encouragement is the most powerful form of motivation because encouragement brings healing in our deepest parts. Encouragement are the words that strengthen the weary. We're told in 1 Thessalonians 5.11, so encourage each other and give each other strength. I'll say that one more time. I think it's so good. So encourage each other and give each other strength. That is so much more than, dude, I like your shirt, or hey, those are some cool shoes. All right, this is, hey, I know things are really tough at work right now, but man, I, I, know, that, I know that you're man enough for this, or I know things are tough at home right now, but I know the kind of woman that you are, you're going to make it through this, okay? Th- that's what it means to encourage someone. And so Jonathan's face brightened, the light came into his eyes, and Solomon is saying that grace-giving words have the same effect Encouraging words strengthen us in the depth of our hearts down to our bones. He says it's healing to the bones. All right. That honey strengthened Jonathan's body. It was a healing agent, so to speak, for him. And Solomon is saying that grace-giving words have that same effect. They cause healing. I don't know if you might have known this or not, but for centuries, or I should say for millennia now, Ancient cultures always believed in the healing power of honey. It was used in Egypt, Greece, Rome, India, and China to heal. Honey is antifungal, so they would spread it on wounds. Honey is antibacterial, so they would eat it to treat things like ulcers and diseases of the intestines. And it was used as a remedy for cough and sore throat. Look, I wish I had some this morning. All right. Uh, You could even put it on your eyes for eye infections. That would be kind of weird, all right? But they would do that. And currently, there are a lot of studies being done trying to understand the healing power of honey. Turns out honey is packed with proteins, enzymes, vitamin B1, B2, B6, C, vitamin E. Then it has minerals like magnesium, potassium, copper, zinc, and manganese. So healing, uh, honey is a, a healing agent. And think about the healing ministry of the church. We talk about healing in church. We think so much about physical healing. You know, we're going to lay our hands on someone and, and they're going to get up out of that wheelchair. Or we're going to pray for someone and the cancer is going to go away. But what about the healing of the spirit? The healing of the heart? I'll never be able to forget this. <clears throat> so when we're traveling, a lot of times... Uh, we used to listen to the Focus on the Family radio program. And one time they had a man on. He was uh, one of the uh, <clears throat> real high, you know, uh, highest leaders in the Culligan Water Company. And they had him on Focus on the Family because he and some other people had partnered together. And they had a ministry in their city where they were stationed, where they were headquartered. They had a ministry to the girls who were prostitutes on the streets of their city. And what these people would do is they would go down... To the, to the streets in the toughest neighborhoods and they'd see the girls walking the streets and they would go up to these girls and they would hand them a rose as a way of kind of beginning a conversation and they would say things to them like, you know, hey, you know, this is for you because, you know, you're a beautiful girl and, you know, you don't really, you know, this is not really the right life for you. And nine times out of ten, the girls would kind of blow them off and say, you know, I don't want to talk to you or you're going to get me in trouble or something like that. 
But he was telling this story. It's the most compelling story. He said a woman, one time he was walking down the street and he saw a young girl. And he went up to her and he handed her a rose and her name, and he said, what's your name? He said, my name is Julie. And he could tell she really wanted to talk. So he began to talk to her and he, and he had a conversation with her. She was a teenage runaway, just like 98% of these other girls that were doing this. And he just said he just felt something stir in his heart. And he looked at her. He looked her right in the eye. And he said, Julie, I just want you to know, I can just tell talking to you that you are a very, very bright girl. You're a very intelligent young lady. You don't belong here. This is not where you belong. And if you want help, we can get you some help. And he gave her a card with a, a drug rehab ministry. And he said, you need to talk to these people. Julie, this is not, this is not for you. This is not where you belong. You are so much better than this. And she said, thank you for that. And her eyes welled up with tears, you know. Well, then he had to go. And he left. He said, two years later, he's in his office, Culligan Water. His secretary said, sir, I'm really sorry. There's some girl named Julie. She says she really has to talk to you. And he picks up the phone. And he said, you know, this is, you know, Sam, whatever his name was. And he said, you probably don't remember me. My name is Julie. She said, two years ago, you found me on the street. You gave me a rose and you talked to me. You encouraged me. She said, I just wanted you to know that I'm in college right now. And you were right. She said, I love it. I got the help that I needed. I love school. She said, I'm even thinking about going to medical school. And she said, I just want you to know that what you said to me that night changed my life. Just a little word of encouragement changed her heart. You know, <clears throat> encouragement is speaking a word that gives grace to someone in this respect, that it heals a wound in their heart. You know, Philemon 1.7, the Apostle Paul said to Philemon, my brother, because you are out there encouraging and reviving the hearts of fellow saints with such love, that brings joy, this brings great joy and comfort to me. Look at that word reviving there. It, you know, in a lot of your translations, you, if you were to look this up, you'd see the word refreshed. And what it means is it means to take someone whose heart is just beating wildly with anxiety and stress and tension and cause that person's heart to rest, to slow down so that their heart can heal. And so he's saying, Philemon, this ministry of encouragement you have is putting people's hearts at rest. And when you speak these grace-giving words to people, their hearts are healed. And so the words we speak in our family, around the office, at school, among friends, at church, the words that we speak are so much more powerful than we realize. And we have to choose what purpose we want our words to have. Three quick facts about encouragement. Number one, I just want you to know this, is that God is an encourager. God is an encourager. You know, encouragement is the ministry of Almighty God, and it's the character of the Word of God. When you read the Word of God from one, you know, from one end to the other, you just see God encouraging the hearts of His people over and over again. You know, in Second Thessalonians, Paul said, May the Lord Jesus Christ and God our Father, who has loved us, and he's giving us unending encouragement and unfailing hope by his grace, inspire you with courage. That's the best definition of encouragement I've ever seen, that God is, with unending encouragement, giving us courage. Number two, encouragement is a gift of the Holy Spirit. You know, we talk about people being 
filled with pride or filled with fear. What does it mean? It means that, you know, that, that pride controls you. Fear controls you. When we talk about somebody being filled with the Spirit. What is that saying? That that person is controlled by the Holy Spirit. And there are people among us in church life that are not just, when they are filled with the Spirit, they're controlled by the Spirit. This supernatural gift of encouragement just pours out of them. And not just sweet words, but surgical words, words that change lives. Romans chapter 12, Paul wrote this. He said, since our gifts vary depending on the grace poured out on each of us, it is important that we exercise the gifts we have been given. And if you have been given a voice of encouragement, then use it often. Man. And I, I, could, I could point out right now, you know, some of those people have a very pure gift of encouragement. And I'm so grateful for you. Thank you for that. And if you have an inkling that this might be your spiritual gift, as your pastor, I just implore you, put that gift to work because it changes lives so much. And number three, though, yeah, it's true that some people have the gift, but we're all commanded to have this ministry of encouragement, you know, lending a helping hand in the words that we say. It's true that some people have a supernatural capacity for it, but as you know, ask anyone what kind of times we are living in, and they will tell you, man, it sure feels like the end. It really does. The day is drawing near. And that means that encouragement is the great need of our day. Hebrews 10.25. This is not the time to pull away and neglect meeting together as some, as some have formed the habit of doing because we need each other. In fact, we should come together even more frequently, eager to encourage and urge each other onward. So things like home groups, man, don't neglect meeting together, but get together and encourage one another. Sunday morning Bible study, uh, you know, uh, uh, Catalyst on Wednesday nights, FCC Kids on Wednesday nights. We want to come together and encourage one another. And we need adults who know, you know what it means to, to encourage young lives. We need that so much in the life of our church. And so I just want to end on this real quickly today. What does it mean to be an encourager? Two things, two things. Number one, encouragers are people who see the future when others only see the present. You know, it's so easy to just assume what someone will become. And if you were run into a girl on the streets of Detroit or Chicago, a teenage runaway who's addicted to drugs, you might assume, yeah, she'll end up in the morgue sometime. But not medical school not college, but we just don't know what somebody could become. And how does somebody like Saul of Tarsus, you know, just a religious zealot, how does he become the Apostle Paul? It becomes a man like Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. That was the name that was given to him, came into his life and he believed in him and he guided him. And the second thing is this, that encouragers are people who see potential where others only see problems. This is hard. <laughs> I won't lie to you. You know, that person in the office you have to work with, you know, that's always a problem. That person at school, that problem student, okay? Um, you know, and then in our family life, you know, sometimes, let's be honest, I mean, uh, sometimes there are problems in our families. Everyone has problems. But the great challenge is to look beyond someone's problems and see their 
potential. And all of us here today, we can all point back to someone who looked past our problems and saw our potential and encouraged us. And one or two well-placed encouragers can change a child's destiny. Just like one or two well-placed critics can change a child's destiny for the worse. But man, you know, this morning we were listening to, a, in my Sunday morning Bible study, we were listening to David Jeremiah. You know, David Jeremiah, uh, he's a, <clears throat> when he was a student, he took a speech class. And uh, I heard him tell this story one time. And there was a cute girl there he wanted to be around. He didn't want to take speech, but there was a cute girl in there. And so he took the speech class. And so being in there, he wasn't interested at all. He didn't take it seriously. And he just goofed off because he was trying to impress the girl. And, uh, and it wasn't working. All right. And uh, he was a problem student. And one day the teacher named John Reed pulled him aside one day after class. And he said, David, I don't know what other people have said to you. He said, but you've got some potential. He said, David, I just want you to know, I really believe in you as a communicator. And you ought not mess around here in speech class the way that you do. You ought to take your potential seriously. Because, David, someday you could be a really, really good speaker. He said, David, you could even be a preacher. <laughs> All right? And that had never entered his mind before. But that conversation caused the first domino to fall. So he went and got a college degree. Then we got a seminary degree. And then he was given a pulpit. And today, it is staggering. Dr. David Jeremiah is the pastor at Shadow Mountain Community Church in San Diego. And he has, uh, he's, his, his messages are carried over radio and TV and in magazines through his ministry called Turning Point. Listen to this. His sermons are aired 37,000 times a day over all the world on more than 2,000 radio stations in the United States, Africa, Canada, India, Mexico, the Philippines, Spain, Great Britain, and all of South America. His television ministry reaches every home in the U.S., and he is broadcast in Canada, Europe, the United Kingdom, Australia, New Zealand, and the Middle East. And to date, listen to this, he's written 72 books. 72! <laughs> all right. Four of those have been on the New York Times bestseller list. You know, several times a year, he'll travel throughout the United States and Europe, and he'll speak in stadiums. And the stadiums will be packed, tens of thousands of people coming to hear him speak. Mr. Reed, David, taking that problem student aside, David, you ought not mess around in here because I can see potential in you. He looked past the problem and saw his potential. Just so as we end up today, I just want to ask you, do you want to have that kind of effect on people in your lifetime? You say, well, I don't know how to, I don't know how to teach. I don't, know how to, I don't know how to coach, or I don't know how to fill in the blank. I don't know how, I don't know how. But can you encourage? All of us can do that. And so, you know, in church life, we say, hey, we, we, we'd love to have your help with student ministry, children's ministry, home groups, something you say, I don't know how, I don't know how. Can you encourage? Can you encourage? I have to ask today, in your home, in your marriage, is your home life characterized by encouragement or criticism? If people were to walk around in your home, even if sometimes it's just playful banter and things like that, but 
the overarching atmosphere of your home? Is it encouragement or is it criticism? It's a hard question, but we're told to encourage one another. And encouragement transforms lives. Teachers, principals in your classroom, is it characterized by criticism or is it characterized by encouragement? Those of you who supervise out in the work world, in the marketplace, your office or your group or your team, is it characterized by encouragement? Is it characterized by criticism and cutting? Encouragement transforms lives, which is the ultimate goal of what we're trying to do as a church. And it changes lives. I know it's changed mine. I know it's changed yours. At school, at church, at home, the encouragement that you and I receive, it changes us. Why? Because it brings healing to the bones, down to the bones. Hebrews 3.13 says, Continually encourage one another every day, as long as there is an opportunity, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's the antidote, the cure for the deceitfulness, the illusions, the trickery of sin is encouragement. Let's bow our heads today. If you don't mind to bow your heads with me for just a moment. You know, here at Faith Covenant, we like to have our head bowed for just a couple of minutes to think about what we've said and what we've taught. And so if I would, I would just ask you just to think about this for a couple of minutes with me. Just think about this ministry of encouragement, how powerful it is. And, and I know there are so many times that we, we offer a word of encouragement, maybe in our family or in our church or in our school or in our friendships, and we think, well, you know, it doesn't really do any good, but you just don't know. You just don't know. But we do know that so many people's lives have been impacted in such a tremendous way by an encouraging word. And we're told over and over again in so many ways to encourage one another. And so I just want to ask you this morning to go before the Lord and just in a really quiet way And just ask the Lord to give you a heart to encourage others. Ask the Lord to give you a heart to encourage the people around you, to encourage your husband, your wife, to encourage your children, to encourage your church, to encourage your students. Ask the Lord to give you a heart to encourage today. While heads are bowed, eyes are closed. Father, today, we just thank you so much that you have set yourself to encouraging us in every way possible. Lord, you've given us great promises in your word. Lord, you've given us a great hope for the future, a vision for the future in your word. I thank you so much for that. Lord, give to us the ability to impart words of hope and new vision into the lives of the people around us. Lord, to to paint a picture of of a new future. Lord, to to look past people's present to see the future. Lord, to look past their problems to see their potential. Lord, make us encouragers. Lord, make Faith Covenant Church a place of encouragement. Make our homes, Lord, beacons of encouragement. And we ask this in your name, Jesus, for your glory, Father. Amen. (laughs) 
Thank you for listening to this sermon from Faith Covenant Church in Borger, Texas. We are so glad you took the time to learn more about God's Word with us. To get in contact with us, visit our website at www.faithborger.com.